Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Podcast. Watch us live every Sunday morning at 9.30 or 11.05 a.m. at GoSBLive.com or visit us in person. You can find directions at GoStonebridge.com. Connect with us on our social media at Facebook.com slash GoStonebridge and our Instagram at SBChurch. Good morning, Stonebridge. My wife and I have had a great time this weekend. Thank you to the pastoral staff and leadership and team that put together uh, the events yesterday. We had a wonderful time, spending a little time. Man, you guys are blessed just to have a a pastoral staff that understand the importance of relationships and how relationships are not just outward flowing in terms of how we love our neighbor, but they're also things that help shape us. They help grow us up into Jesus. Uh, Marriage, intimate relationships, caring for children, for example, all of those things teach us ultimately about God. And so you're blessed to have a staff who understands that and is willing to invest in those aspects of your life. We just sang a song, if I know one thing, my God is a deliverer. Well, I hope this morning to just try to somehow help that truth go a little bit deeper into your soul. When you got up this morning, you went to your closet and decided what you were going to put on, you probably decided to pick out, oh, something pretty presentable. I know I did that when Nan and I were packing for this trip. Uh, we decided we'd pick out what we were going to wear, right? Now, you didn't pick out your worst clothes and come here today, but you probably didn't pick out your absolute best clothes, but you wanted to get something presentable. Isn't that a little bit like how we sort of carry ourselves emotionally and relationally when we walk into church? We all know there's a part of us that's mm, not very presentable. We all know our own failings and our own imperfections. But when we walk into this place, we really don't want people to see that. So we sort of cover it up and act presentable. How are you? I'm fine. How's your marriage? Oh, it's fine. How are your kids? Fine, 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 fine. Why do we do that? There's a little bit of shame in that embedded in there. Like we just, we want to look good. Even though we know we're not so good. Maybe you're like me. You've walked into church from time or two in your life, and you thought, boy, if they knew who I was 20 minutes ago, they wouldn't let me in this place. You ever have that thought? Something like, man, I don't deserve this. I don't, these people got it all figured out. Look at this couple over here and their children. They're all nice, and they're being sweet and kind to one another, and my kids never do that. What's going on? I don't know. There's something really crazy about that whole thing. And I think it gets in the way of us being church to one another, but it really gets in the way of... The fact that God's a deliverer getting into our souls so that we can bless other people with it. Let me tell you what I mean. A number of years ago, I wanted to find the perfect biblical family. I was just starting my career in in family ministry, and I thought, man, I really need to know who got this right so I can teach people how to get it right. And I opened up my Bible, and I'm just going to take you on the little survey that I went on, right? Let's start in the beginning. Adam and Eve. They blew it for all of us. Thank you very much. (laughs) How long did that take? I don't know. Not very long, it seems like get kicked out of the garden, and then what? They become parents, and they have two kids, Cain and Abel. Now, you thought the sibling rivalry was bad at your house. I mean, one one was going to kill the other one. This is not a good start to God's people. So let's keep reading, right? Surely it's got to get better. We come to this guy named Abraham. In the Old Testament, there's this phrase used over and over and over again, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's God speaking. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He identifies himself with these people. And uh, and when the start of the church happens in Acts, Peter's going to reference that. I mean, this is a big thing. God's folks, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, these are my people. Through Abraham, there's going to be a seed born that is going to bless all nations. That's ultimately going to be Jesus Christ. I remember thinking to myself, I bet this family did it pretty well. 
Well, let me tell you what happens. Abraham's got a wife named Sarah. She's really beautiful. Abraham's a little insecure. How do we know? Because on two occasions, not one, but two, they're traveling through a land, and in that day, the king, the ruler, whoever it is, the pharaoh, could just say, ooh, she's pretty. I'll take her and add her to my harem. So Abraham's a little concerned that the way they're going to get to my beautiful wife is by killing me. So here's my solution. I'll just lie and tell him she's my sister. Okay, ladies, does this engender warm fuzzies in a woman's heart (laughs) when her husband lies about her and says, oh, no, 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 she's single. You can have her. Does that help build safety and security in your marriage? I don't think so. Now, hang on to that. I think that was an injury, an attachment injury, we would call it today, in Sarah's heart. How do we know? Because of what happens as the story goes on. They've been promised a son, only they're getting older and older, and they're not able to have a son. She still can't get pregnant, and so Sarah one day comes up with this great idea. She goes to her husband and says, look, I got a maidservant. Her name is Hagar. Why don't you take her, make her your second wife, get her pregnant, and then we'll have a child through her. Time out. All right, married ladies in the audience, um, when did that thought last cross your mind? Hey, honey, I got an idea. Like, no, this is weird. Like, what? I know it was a custom that was common in that culture, but it's still strange. And these are God's people. How does that make sense? God's really going to tell us this story about his people? I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And oh, by the way, keep in mind, if you fast forward to Hebrews chapter 11, that great chapter we call the Faith Hall of Fame, everybody we're talking about this morning is in that chapter. They were faithful, and yet... Messed up. Sarah's supposed to have a son. She's not getting pregnant. Hagar, all right. Abraham says, good idea. So he, sure enough, Hagar becomes wife number two. She gets pregnant. As soon as she gets pregnant, the greatest thing a woman in the ancient world could do was give her wife a child. And if she gave him a son that was even better, she got more credibility because now the family name could get passed to the next generation. So Hagar gets pregnant and she just starts thumbing her nose at Sarah. Ha ha, I can have a baby. You can have one. And now there's this rivalry thing going on between the women. Of course, right? Sarah's mad. She goes to her husband. Hey, I know it was my idea, but I don't like it anymore. I want that woman out of here. Abraham goes, oh, uh, I don't know what else to do. Okay, fine. See, Abraham wouldn't stand up for anything right in moments when the ships were down. He just over and over again acquiesced to what was going on. The Lord ends up bringing Sarah, uh, excuse me, Hagar back. She's pregnant out to here. There's no provision. They're going to die in the wilderness. And the Lord, Spirit of the Lord brings them back and says to Abraham, no, 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 no. This is your problem. You deal with it. Care for this woman and this child. What a mess. Well, Sarah still promised a child. Finally, the day comes when she does get pregnant, and she has a son. His name is Isaac. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Isaac is born. Now, is this whole rivalry thing within the household over? Nope. How do we know? Because of what happens next. You see, Ishmael, that's Hagar's son. He's a little older than Isaac. He comes in one day. They're having a little party for Isaac. Ishmael starts making fun of Isaac the same way that his mother would make fun of Isaac's mother. And we have the same song, second verse. Sarah goes to Abraham. I want that woman and her son out of the house. Just get rid of them. No more of this. Notice how she, Sarah, is trying to marginalize Abraham from his very own son. That woman and her son. She doesn't say your son. She says her son. Now, a quick little tip for you step-parents in here. Never, ever, 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 ever try to push your spouse away from their kids. Hey, it's me or them. Choose. And that is a wrong idea. It was wrong for Sarah. It'll be wrong today. Well, that, this rivalry thing just gets worse. How do we know? Because the story continues. Keep reading in Genesis. Isaac grows up. He marries a woman named Rebecca. 
He goes to a well one day and he meets this gorgeous woman and he decides, you know what? I think I want to make her my wife. Sure enough, they get married. They have two boys. Their names are, anybody remember? Jacob and Esau. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob and Esau. It's funny that we say Jacob and Esau because really Esau is the older one. We should say Esau and Jacob, but we don't. Why? Because of the story. You see, here's what happens. At one point in the story, Esau's sort of hungry. He's the firstborn. He's going to have the birthright. The main inheritance is going to flow down through him. But he's hungry one day, and he decides to give it all up. His younger brother tricks him out of his birthright, and he trades it off for a bowl of soup. That was a harebrained thing to do. So their little rivalry continues. Fast forward a number of years. Dad, Isaac, is now old in age. It's time for him to give the blessing to his oldest male son. That was the cultural process. It always went to the oldest son. Um, And what was the blessing? Well, it wasn't just like a live long and prosper thing. It was, hey, here's the prophetic word I have for you about how your life is going to go. And then everybody would build their world around that narrative and they would support that prophecy, that prophetic word. And so the blessing was a really, really, really big deal. And Esau's ready for the blessing. He and his dad had a little plan. I'm going to go out. Esau says, hunt something, kill it, bring it home, cook you dinner. Dad, you eat dinner, and then after dinner, you can give me the blessing. Now, here's what you need to know. Number one, Isaac is old. He can't see well, can't hear well. So he's a little handicapped in that way. Number two, his wife, Rebecca, her favorite child out of the two was the younger one, Jacob, not the older one, Esau. So mommy comes to little one and says, I got a plan. While your brother's out trying to hunt something, why don't you put on your brother's clothes and go in there and have dinner with your dad? I'll cook dinner real quick. You go in there and we'll trick him and steal the blessing. It worked. Let's just make sure I get the picture here. Mom is conspiring with her younger son against her husband and her older son to steal the blessing, and it works. Dad's unaware of who he's talking to. He blesses Jacob, not Esau. Now the rivalry is really ramped up because Esau comes home and realizes, whoa, 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 wait a minute, that was my blessing, where's mine? And dad says, oh, I'm so sorry, I only have one blessing to give, and I guess it's going to Jacob, not you. And Esau is hopping mad, of course he is. This is his right, but it's been taken out right, up, uh, right out from under him, and he is angry, and he wants to kill his brother. Well, Jacob runs to mommy because like, what, you know, you got me into this. Now what are we going to do? Mom, what am I going to do? Where do I go? And mom says, uh, okay, I got it. You run to my brother's house. Go to Uncle Laban's house. He lives a long ways off. Just go and hang out until your brother calms down and then you can come home. Um, By the way, it's going to be years before Jacob is able to come home because of the anger and the rift that is taking place within this family. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Like this mess? Well, surely God's people got to get it together, right? They got to figure this whole family thing out. So let's keep reading in the Bible. What happened? Uh, Jacob flees to a far off country. That's very important. We'll come back to that in a minute. And he ends up in a place where his uncle Laban and his family live. Only he doesn't really understand, he hasn't met them yet. So he's at a well, he's thirsty, he's hoping to get a little water. And this woman walks up. Hear a little theme about wells and women? And he meets her and he goes, wow, she is amazing. I think I want to make her my wife. Her name happens to be Rachel. 
Well, guess what? Rachel happens to be the daughter of Laban, Uncle Laban. This is Uncle Laban's daughter. She takes him, meet my uncle. Here's the family. They're like welcoming to this uh, nephew of Uncle Laban. Sure, you can live with us. Sure, you can go to work for me. This will be a wonderful occasion. And in the meantime, Jacob is in love with Rachel, and he says to his uncle, I want to marry her. And some of you are doing the math. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's his cousin. He wants to marry his cousin? Isn't that a little weird? I, the only redeeming part of this whole story, as far as I'm concerned, is that they lived a long ways off, which means she was a distant cousin. <laughs> Just making sure you're staying awake. And Uncle Laban says, sure, work for me seven years. That will be the equivalent of the bride price, which is sort of what a guy had to do. He had to you know, pay money to the family, and that would basically create a dowry. And so if you ever left her, then you'd lose the dowry. So this whole system there, bride price, seven years, you work for me. That will pay off the bride price, and then you can marry my daughter, Rachel. Wonderful. All right, great. Now, here's a backstory. Seven years later, Jacob says, let's get married. And Uncle Laban says, you're right. I owe you a wedding. And Uncle Laban sneaks in Leah as the bride. Who's Leah? Uncle Laban has two daughters. The oldest one is Leah. The younger one is Rachel. Rachel, about her, the Bible says that she was beautiful and lovely in form. Whoa. She is smoking hot. That's what she is. <laughs> but about Leah, whew, the Bible says about her that she had weak eyes. Which means she had a really good personality, if you know what I mean. Even their names are very telling about this whole dynamic. Rachel's name means you, lamb, precious, beautiful, little lamb. And Leah's name means cow. <laughs> I'm not making this up. Nobody wants to marry the cow. Everybody wants to marry the, the lamb, right? And so hey, seven years go by, I want to marry Rachel. Well, this is the what goes around, comes around story of the Bible. Because Uncle Laban sneaks in Leah as the bride. What do you mean he snuck her in? Jacob marries Leah and doesn't realize it's not Rachel. How does that happen? She had a pretty thick veil. That's the only thing I can figure out. Jacob has no idea what has taken place. And the story gets even better or worse, depending on how you look at it. Because once they're married, then you see in the ancient world, they would just slide off into a little side room and they would consummate the marriage. Unlike what we do today where we have a big party and then after a while, the couple goes away on their honeymoon. No, no, no. They would slide over here into the ancient world. They would consummate the relationship while the party was going on. And then they would come out and merge back into the party. And oh, by the way, there was sexual accountability. So the elders of the town would go into the bedroom and check and make sure that there was some sort of indication that she was in fact a virgin when they consummated the marriage. Now, how would you like to add that to our accountability process in weddings today? You think anybody would go for that? I don't really think so. In the meantime, Jacob goes and consummates the marriage with Leah and still does not know it's not Rachel. Have you read your Bible? This is craziness. How does he not know? She kept the veil on. That's the only thing that I could deduce. That and a whole lot of alcohol. And Jacob has no idea what has happened until he rolls over and he's laying next to a cow. In which case, now he knows what has taken place. And he's hopping mad. And he runs to his Uncle Laban and he says, hey, I thought we had a deal. I give you seven years. I get her hand. I get this one. Nobody wants this one. I want this one. Can you imagine being Leah? Anybody in here, Leah? Nobody wants you. Nobody claims you. Nobody fights for you. And oh, I'm sorry, honey, we're going to have to sneak you in because that's the only way ever, any man's ever going to. Oh, my gosh. It's 
This is the family of Jesus comes from this. Well, the story's got to get better, right? I mean, come on, these are God's people. So let's keep reading. Sure enough, Rachel is the one he wants. So Uncle Laban says, I'll tell you what, I'll give you Rachel also, but you got to work for me another seven years. 14 years he works for her. He probably got to marry her after a few months, maybe a couple of years, married to Leah. But the bottom line is he backhoed his uncle another seven years. 14 years go by. So in the meantime, Jacob's now married to two women, Leah and Rachel. One he wants, the other he does not. Leah has nothing in this whole arrangement. Nothing works on her favor, which is why God looks upon her and has grace, the Bible says. Grace in the form of what? He allows Leah to get pregnant. Because in the ancient world, the greatest thing a wife could do was give her husband a child, especially a son, that carry on the family name. Rachel, on the other hand, is unable to get pregnant for whatever reason, and it doesn't happen. But Leah can get pregnant, and lo and behold, she's got a child, and, and it's a boy. And she gives him this awesome name. She goes, Reuben, this is my child Reuben, which I think is like a manly man's name. Like, yeah, finally, Leah gets something. Reuben, that's awesome. Yes. What does Reuben mean? Misery. She named her child Misery. And she actually makes the statement, because the Lord has seen my misery, maybe my husband will love me now. Oh my word, this is awful stuff. Leah gets pregnant again. She has a second son. She names him Simeon, which means one who hears. And she makes the statement, because the Lord has heard that I am not loved. She gets pregnant again. She has a third son, Levi, which means attached. And she makes a statement, now my husband will be attached to me. Oh, you can just hear her pain, heartache, her longing for somebody to choose her. Well, Rachel's over there going, oh my goodness, she's having all these kids. She's going to be the favorite wife. Next thing you know, I'm going to be out. What am I going to do? Wait, I got an idea. I got a maidservant, Bilhah. I'll give her to my husband. That'll be wife number three if you're keeping track. And Bilhah will get pregnant, and I'll be able to name that child with my name that I want to give it, and then I'll, my status will go up within the household. So, lo and behold, Bilhah gets pregnant, and Rachel names the child Dan, which means vindication. And she makes the statement, because now at last I've been vindicated, me, I've been vindicated against my sister. Bilhah gets pregnant again. Second child, Naphtali. She names him Naphtali, which means my struggle. And she makes the statement, I have had a great struggle with my sister, and I have won. Oh, it's on, girls. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Lee and Rachel are going at it through all this craziness, getting people pregnant and having these children that nobody really cares about. Daddy certainly doesn't care about this whole process because the only one he wants is Rachel, and she's not able to have any kids yet. Well, not to be outdone at this point in the story, Leah says, well, I got a maidservant. Her name's Zilpah. I'll give her to my husband. That's wife number four, if you keep track. And she'll get pregnant, and I'll be able to name that one. And she gives the name Gad to the first child born to Zilpah, which means good fortune, which is why, fast forward to today, we say Egad when we have bad fortune. Okay, that's a lie. I made it up. Just sounded good. <laughs> and then Asher comes along to Zilpah, and on and on it goes. People, this is craziness. These are God's people. ABC has nothing on these. These are the original desperate housewives right here. <laughs> it's in the Bible. And these people end up in Hebrews 11, faith, hall of fame. How can that be? What a mess. 
well, surely the story's got to get better, right? The day finally comes. Rachel, the favored wife, the one chosen, the one he wanted all along, who hasn't been able to have a child, finally gets pregnant. And Rachel names him Joseph. And Joseph never, ever has to mow the yard. <laughs> he never has to take out the trash. He's daddy's little boy. And the favoritism is clear to his half-brothers who are growing up with mothers unchosen and their lives complicated. But there's him over there. There's Joseph, their sweet little Joseph. And then he comes home one day as a teenager and daddy just gave him a coat, a beautiful coat with all kinds of colors on that coat. We all know what that means. We're done. We are sick and tired of the favoritism going on in this family. I know what we're going to do. We're going to kill him. Let's just kill him. Wait, 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 wait. I got a better idea. Okay, brothers, this is what we do. We sell him into slavery. They'll chew him up for 70 years and then they'll kill him. But in the meantime, we can go tell dad that he's dead. We could tell a wild animal got him and we can just sort of laugh at dad behind his back. Are you kidding me? These are God's people. Well, the story's got to get better, right? Nope, doesn't get any better. It's just more mess, generation after generation after generation. Did we finally come to a guy named David, who God really likes because he's going to elevate him to the position of king over Israel. And at one point, God says, David is a man after my own heart. At least at that season of David's life, he was a man after God's own heart. But let's look at his household. Did he have a perfect family? Well, he had 19 wives, so there's that. And then he has this premeditated murder to cover the sexual assault. Let me tell you, most scholars today are saying Bathsheba was not an affair. It was not mutual. It was the king taking a woman and abusing her for his own Ends And so he is premeditated, covered a sexual assault. And then all of a sudden he has a son, the next generation, born to a, one of his other wives who says, oh, dad could be sexually disgraceful, so I guess I can too. So he rapes one of his own half-sisters, one of David's daughters. And then he has another half-brother hunt him down and revenge of that sister and kill him. Are you feeling any better about your family right about now? <laughs> I mean, come on. I mean, I know I'm a mess sometimes, but gosh, I'm not so sure I fell into those categories. Like, isn't it funny the things we do to ourselves, how we walk in and we feel second class, we feel like we don't belong, and we've never really stopped to think about God's people. And by the way, why in the world would God put this narrative in the scriptures? Like, if you're trying to impress the world, don't you think you'd tell them the story about all the perfect people that you command? That's never been God's agenda because the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is a phrase I finally understood is not so much about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as it is a phrase about God, about the God of the universe who works in and among imperfect, messed up, dysfunctional, crazy people for his own will and his own good way. He uses us in spite of us. The biblical text gives us all kinds of good principles on how to do relationships, marriage, family, parenting. It's, it's in there. It's some really great, rich stuff. We've just never had a perfect biblical family. Nobody's ever lived up to it, and you and I will not either. And if we could just understand that we fit in with the narrative of God's people all along, it's the same story. Imperfect people being made perfect through his work through us. If we would just receive that and accept it and rest in it 
then maybe, just maybe, we wouldn't be worried all the time about looking good. I was doing a step family conference one time, and a guy, we went to a break, and I, I, I kind of caught him. He, he jumped up fast and headed down the aisle, and he was running fast, and I thought, he's going to hit me. What did I just say? This guy is mad. He runs right up, and he goes, hey, Ron, i got to ask you a question. I said, oh, okay. He goes, what do I do about the D and the R? And he points to his forehead, D and R. i got a tattoo right here, D and R. And I was looking, and I didn't see any D and R. I said, dude, what do you mean? He goes, you know, divorced and remarried. It happened. I left my first wife. I left my kids in a state of rebellion. I left the Lord, left the church. I did some horrible things. I finally repented, couldn't reconcile that marriage, came back to the Lord. I found a woman. We've gotten married. We're here at your blended family conference because we want to do this thing right and we want to do it as best we can, but I can't shake these tattoos. He said, every time I walk into church, people know what I did. I feel like they're looking at me like, oh, there he is. And he referenced the woman, the scarlet letter, you know, where they put an A, the adulteress, and they sewed it into her clothes everywhere she went everybody, oh she's the adulteress don't have anything to do and he's like I feel like that when I walk into church I feel like second class what do I do with this D and R now, I want to tell you what I said to the guy in just a second but first I want to ask you what tattoos did you walk in with that you have covered up what are those little pieces of your life you just don't want anybody to know? And if they did know, you feel like they would use it against you. You feel like you would feel less than, like you don't deserve to be here. Maybe you've struggled in your marriage. Nan and I talked yesterday. We've been married 37 years, and we, we're a mess. But we kind of know more about why we're a mess, and we're working really hard to let Lord help us deal with those pieces of ourselves. The old self we're trying to get rid of and the new self we're trying to put on. But there are moments where we just don't look pretty at all maybe you can relate to that uh, maybe you had a child out of wedlock earlier in life maybe you had an abortion maybe pornography is just hunting you down like you're just working so hard to get rid of that thing but it just keeps coming back in your world maybe you've been a poor friend to somebody lately you hurt them stabbed them in the back or something and you just feel really bad about that but you did it Maybe you trust your achievements. Maybe you're an accomplisher, and, and, and you just have gotten so good at stuff, and you just kind of walk in here, and all these other little peons are not as good as you, and your pride has gotten way out of control. Maybe you come from a home of dysfunction and, and, and addiction, and the, and the only legacy your family's carried forward is just one of, of, of irresponsibility and hurting people, and that's sort of what you carry with you. Maybe you smoked pot in college and you inhaled. Or maybe, just maybe, <laughs> some of you older ones can explain that to the younger ones who didn't quite get that one. Maybe, just maybe, you're one of those imperfect families where you just have bad parenting days. You just sort of blow it. You don't know what to do. And it just went all awry. And you're struggling with your adult kids. And you're not really sure about the decisions that you're making. Or maybe you just made some bad relational decisions with a friend or somebody you're dating or a spouse. And you just recognize that it's hard. And you're imperfect. And you walk in here and you just kind of go, I can hide them, but I can't wipe off the tattoos. I got good news. So I turned to this guy and he goes, the D and the R. And I said, look, dude, I get it. First of all, I'm sorry. Uh, people and God's people, good-hearted, well-intended people will treat you differently because of that D and R. They will look at you and they will think you're less than and it happens and I, it shouldn't, but it does and I'm sorry. 
I said, but more importantly than that, in God's economy, if you understood the history of his people, I think you'll understand that the DNR really doesn't mean divorced and remarried. You see, in God's economy, it means delivered and redeemed. You see, it's not so much about who we are and how perfect we are, how well we perform in this life. It is very much about what God is doing in us in spite of who we are. It's what he does with our story. Not how we work it out, but what he does to change the narrative. What do you mean change the narrative? In John chapter 4 in the New Testament, there's another dysfunctional, messed up person who has an encounter this time with the Christ. You know, the woman at the well. Maybe you've heard that story before. Let me just recap real quickly. So Jesus goes through Samaria. First of all, he's a Jew, and Samaritans, they don't get along. You don't even pass through here. The disciples are like, no, 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 no. We go around Samaria. We don't. He goes, nope, we're going through. They're over. The disciples are trying to find some food. Jesus goes to this well where he meets a woman. Hey, haven't we heard that before? And he goes to this well, and this woman walks up. Now, uh, it's the middle of the day. It's high noon. It's really hot. Uh, no women traveled out of the town, walked all the way to the well, and got water in the middle of the day. That happened early in the morning or late in the evening when it was cooler because they had to carry that water all the way back to town. But this woman's there in the heat of the day. That tells us something about her. There's something about her that makes her a social outcast. There's something about her that the elders of the town have told all the other women, you don't have anything to do with her. She's on her own. You stay away from her. She's got a past. She's got a few tattoos. And in the encounter with Jesus, we're going to discover what those tattoos are. But watch what Jesus does and what he says to her. So Jesus walks up and said, hey, would you please give me a drink? And she says, um, hello, you're a Jew, I'm Samaritan, we're not supposed to do this. Remember the ethnic code? Okay, stop for a minute. This whole conversation, Jesus is going to try to point her to living water, right? He's trying to do eternal spiritual conversation. And she's over here stuck in the physical world. Now watch this. Would you give me a drink? She goes, no, you're a Jew, I'm Samaritan. We're not supposed to have this dialogue and conversation. You do know that, right? So he tries again. Hey, if you knew who I was, and you'd, you'd ask me for a drink. Because no, he, he knows what he's got to offer her. Her response is, um, hello, you don't have a bucket. I don't know how you're going to get any water out of this well. Like, no, lady, you're not tracking with me. Let me do this one more time. He says, everyone who drinks of this water is going to be thirsty again. But if anyone who drinks of the water I give, you'll never be thirsty again. One more time, she misses it. She, she's not tracking with him. She says, oh, please give me some of that water because then I won't have to come out here every stinking day and get more water. No, you're not tracking with me. So Jesus does one of those really cool Jesus moves. He changes the subject and he goes to her thirst. Having a conversation about water at a well, he talks to her real thirst. Go call your husband. I don't have a husband. Yes, that's true. You've been married five times. Now you're living with somebody. You just sort of given up on love. Jesus doesn't say go call your husband because he wants to make her feel bad. He says go call your husband because she's not listening. She's not tracking with him. And he's like, look, I'm going to get your attention so that you will come over here and let me tell you about this living water. Jesus was not afraid to use your past and my past to help get our attention. He doesn't do it to make us feel ashamed of ourselves like, oh, lowly is me, a horrible second class. No, he's doing it so we will shut up, quit worrying about our past, and listen to him. If we'll tune in, then all of a sudden the story changes. What do you mean? Now he's got her attention. She says, I think you're a prophet. He says, yes, I am. Let's have a conversation about what's really important in life. Next thing you know, she's drinking of eternal water. How do we know? Because of what happens next. 
She leaves that encounter. She runs back into town and she starts talking to everybody. I met this guy at the well. You've got to come meet this guy. He's told me everything I've ever done. And I just imagine their reaction. Oh, honey, we know what you've been doing. We've been talking about you all day, as a matter of fact. Right here on the cover of People magazine. Did you not know? And she's like, no, 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 you don't understand. I don't think it's about me. I think it's what God is doing in me. Come see this guy. Do you guys know who the first evangelist to the Samaritan nation was? A five-time divorcee who was living with a guy. How cool is that? Because God doesn't care about our imperfection. He is not limited by our limitations. He works through that and changes that. And when we drink of the living water, then all of a sudden, our past is not about our past. See, what happens is that, uh, let me just start with the four things I want you guys to do with this whole thing that this woman did. First thing is quit worrying about your past, right? At some point in this story, she let it go. She quit worrying about it and she said, you know what? Okay, now I'm gonna let God redeem my story and I'm gonna drink deeply of this water that he has provided for me. And then I'm gonna rest in that grace so that I can go back and tell somebody else what God has done for me. That's the progression through the story. She's gonna stop worrying about her past. She's gonna let God redeem it, put the D and the R right on her forehead and change what it means. She, had, she came into the well with DR, 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 I lost track, DR, And at the end of the day, she walks out with delivered and redeemed. And now she's resting in that and going and telling other people. So get the picture here. This woman who started this day alone as a social outcast, as nobody wanted to be around her, second-class citizen of of life, all of a sudden becomes a first-class citizen because how God changes her narrative of her story. You and I cannot change our past, but we can change the story we tell about our past. Let me say that again. This is the story of the scriptures and God's people interacting with him. We cannot change our past, but in Christ, we can change the story we tell about our past. The best part of this woman was the worst part of her at the beginning of the story. She goes back, he told me everything I've ever done. Come meet this guy. That builds hope into others. And John goes to great lengths to tell us how many people came out and began to believe in the Messiah because of her. People, if we keep walking around, fine, fine, I'm just fine, unwilling to just disclose the reality of imperfections in our lives, then we have not embraced God's grace. We have not allowed him to change the narrative of our lives. But once we do that, then we become a catalyst to bring people to Christ, to influence our own homes, to influence our neighbors and influence the people in our world. But until we embrace that grace, we're just gonna keep hiding. And the gospel goes nowhere. But what a beautiful picture when we finally follow her and drink deeply of the water. Two other little pictures in this story in John 4 that I want us to end on. I read this story for many, many years in my life and I missed them. I want to make you aware of them just to show you the beauty of what John is saying to us. First of all, at the end of John chapter 3, the last story before John starts telling the story about the woman at the well, John the Baptist makes a statement about Jesus. He says he is the bridegroom. Now, what do bridegrooms need? They're looking for a a bride, right? That's what happens with bridegrooms. They're looking for a bride. 
Now, the rest of the New Testament and Revelation will tell us that we, the church, are his bride. And someday he's coming back for us and we'll be together with him as our first love. But in John's gospel, he says, here's the bridegroom. He's looking for a bride. And then the very next sentence, he goes into a story about Jesus going to a well and meeting a woman and finding a bride. But here's the catch. You see, um, when John starts this story, it's, it's what we call a story starter. You can set up a story that everybody's very familiar with. If I were to say to you, a long, long time ago, in a land, you guys know how the story goes, right? I set it up, you know what's coming. John set up a story that the Jewish readers would have said, oh, a man goes to a well and meets a woman. Oh, we know this one. That happened way back with Jacob. He met his wife. How wonderful is that? Moses goes to a well. He meets his wife Zipporah. How cool is that? He meets the worthy woman. They have a wonderful marriage. Everything works out just wonderfully. And Jesus goes to this well and he meets an unworthy woman. And the Jewish readers would have said, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's not how this story goes. She is not supposed to be in this story. And that's the point. You see, Jesus' bride are people like you and me who are unworthy of being the bride. It's not about us. It's about what he does in us. It's about how he redeems and makes us new and changes the story we tell about our past so that we can now run to the town and tell everybody else about him. And I'm example number one of God's kindness. That's what John wants us to get. You and I, we're this woman. By the way, what's the perfect number in the Bible? Turn to somebody sitting next to you. What's the perfect number? You guys know that in Scripture? Yeah, the number seven. It's, it has great symbolism throughout Scripture. Seven days, seven years. A jubilee happens seven times seven. Like all kinds of symbolism. Uh, in the Revelation, it talks about uh, the perfection of time. And here comes God to take his people back. The number seven. Really big, important number. What's the imperfect number? Six, right? So the mark of the beast is six, six, six. He's close to seven, but he, he's a counterfeit. He's close. Makes you feel like you're going to get the real thing. But then he doesn't deliver. Six. And seven. How many times has this woman been married? Five. She's living with a guy. Six. Making Jesus her perfect seven. This is who he is. This is what he does with us in our imperfections. One other thing about this story that's so amazing. The whole conversation with this woman takes place by a well. Anybody happen to know the name of the well? Shout it out. Jacob's well. Oh, wait a minute. You mean Jacob with the four wives and a messed up Leah, Rachel, Zilpah, Bilhah mess? Right. As a matter of fact, that well was named after Father Jacob, and it sits on property that Jacob gave to Joseph, his favorite son. The well itself is a symbolism of dysfunction, favoritism, sin. By that well, a thousand years before, Jacob and Leah and Rachel were working out their whole mess. Here's this well given to my son Joseph, my favorite one. It's a symbol of all of that mess. A thousand years later, here's another woman with an imperfect life who meets the bridegroom. Who says to her, it's okay. Just drink deep and rest in my grace. 
And dare I say that you and I are here 2,000 years later, and we've kind of gathered by a well today just to hang out a little bit, and I want to say to you the same thing he's saying to me, that just like this woman, your imperfection is not a problem for God. Quit worrying about it. Quit hiding and masking it. Instead, be open with it. You're example one of God's kindness. We get to share that with each other. It's called church. We get to go to the world and back into town and tell people about what he's done for us. This is called testimony. And what does it do? It brings the world to Christ. Let's embrace it. Let's disclose it. Let's get real with one another. Let's be the church. And let's tell people about the living water. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you so much for... for redeeming us from ourselves. We know we don't deserve it. We know we're unworthy, but we also know that in your economy, we're not second class because there's no such thing as first class. There's just people who have been delivered and redeemed. God, we thank you for that truth today. Would you help us to internalize that even more than we ever have in the past so that to the point of confidence, to the point of not having to hide in any anymore, to the point of confidence in who you are so that we can tell others what you have done for us. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name.